Soraya. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Doing very well. Hey, do you remember when we did that, our first Listen podcast and I played you three Vox bands? Yes, I do. Yes. Bands that you weren't super familiar with, as I remember. That is correct. Well, we decided that we wanted to do a little mini-series, and reach, and uh, we actually reached out to those three bands that were on Vox. Uh, as you know, we just talked to members from the Pandoras, right. uh, from two different versions of the band, and uh, they started off on Vox. But um, our next three episodes should be uh, the bands from that first Listens podcast, and we're starting yeah. it off with who? The Things! The Things, yeah. So we've invited... Steve Crabtree and Roy McDonald, uh, who were original members of the band, to come on and, and talk to us about their time with the things. Roy McDonald, the Roy McDonald, drummer of the Muffs, the Roy McDonald. Yes, him, him. Um, and yeah. I've been listening to a lot of Red Cross lately, and he played with them for a while, too. So. You know what's really cool, too, is uh, Steve Crabtree has this uh, documentary available on YouTube. Um, and uh, the documentary is called Not Everyone Makes It. And it's a really, it's a compelling documentary. It talks about his journey in music. Yes. And, and uh, it's a really, it's a very interesting story. Lots of twists and turns. But, you know, at the core of it is someone who's passionate about music and making music. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, so we highly recommend that. And I think we can probably add a couple of links when the episode goes live but yeah we definitely should and uh, i mean just the title of the documentary alone not everyone makes it i mean it kind of it's he doesn't bury the lead does he i mean no no he <laughs> uh he leaves it out there and i think that's i think that's what's such a draw is that um he bears no bones and, you know roy mcdonald uh was a part of this band before leaving and um, moving on to other projects. So it's just, it's an interesting look at music, music business and bands and uh, how things ebb and flow. So Jeff, I don't know, let's hop into it. Let's do it. Hi, this is Soraya. And this is Jeff. Our podcast is called Paisley Stage Raspberry and Rhyme. A podcast where the two of us play music that we like and share anecdotes and background about the tunes. We hope you'll join our conversation. And without further ado, agroviar. Let's get groovy. So on today's episode, we continue to look at Vox recording artists, which we started with our conversation with the Pandoras, actually. And we've mentioned, or I've mentioned, that the Vox label to me was kind of like a distant cousin of the Paisley Underground. So Roy and Steve, we primarily talk about the Paisley Underground, but um, I look at the Vox artists as, as a related a related uh, scene, right? Because you guys yeah. had this yeah, scene absolutely. with bands from the, in the 80s, heavily influenced from music from the 60s. Not only the music, but fashion kind of crept into, into yeah. how you guys presented yourselves and the album covers and whatnot. But um, we had an episode a few weeks back 
And it was a first listen episode for Soraya where I picked some songs by The Things, The Telltale Hearts, and The Steps to play for Soraya. And we got her first reaction. So uh, that was pretty fun. But we wanted to let our listeners know that today we're welcoming Steve Crabtree and Roy McDonald. You guys have done a lot of stuff before and after The Things, but today we wanted to primarily focus on The Things. So Steve, Roy, welcome to Paisley Stage, Raspberry and Rye. Thank you very much. Yay. Thank you. you fun. <laughs> uh, Steve, we want to start with you um, sure. and ask about the origin of the things. And in your documentary, Not Everyone Makes It, available in two parts on YouTube. And we are, for our listeners, we are going to provide a link to that. Um, we learned that you were influenced by going to see Salvation Army. At, at well, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say influence. I was blown away because I was we were kind of trying to do the same thing, but yeah, I was, I was very enamored. You know, it was, uh, it was, it was um, affirmation that what we wanted to do was was working for other people. And I, we, you know, we we were nobodies, and we couldn't even get a gig. And I go watch this band; and they got this audience and, and a following, and they came out dressed uh, like the monkeys. You know, <laughs> um, yep. yeah, it was it was it was pretty cool. You know. I was a big fan, I was a big fan. So Roy, our question for you, um, we like to find out how the artists that we talk to get attracted to a certain instrument or certain craft. Can you tell us how you were drawn to playing the drums initially? Um, I always kind of gravitated toward the drums. Um, a, a big record. <clears throat> when I was a kid that I used to like to play along with was Sgt. Pepper. And I would take like pillow cushions, you know, and put them all around. And, and we, had, we, I, we had carom sticks. Remember the game caroms? So those big old, they were not really, they weren't really pool cues, but they were like a smaller version. Uh, okay. 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 And I used to take, you know, a couple of those and, and play along with it. So that was probably my earliest, you know, you know, wanting to be a drummer. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then seeing Kids Are All Right. Oh, yeah. Big influence. Wow. Just seeing him perform, it was, yeah, it was, that was that was pretty influential. But it was something that I didn't really pursue until I was a freshman in high school. Oh, okay. And then, so was it you know, like a high school band kind of thing? Yep. Yeah. yeah. And Steve, what about you, the guitar? What what drew you to it, or when was your earliest memory of drawn to it? I well, I I often say uh, I was only two months old, but when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show, I think it was just <laughs> it was on in our house, and and we had Beatle records growing up. I had an older brother and sister that that had all those records, early Rolling Stones. I I can't remember. I can't. I don't know how far back, but I played air guitar since I was really 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 young. You know. I pretended to be a rock star. I actually started learning to play when I was 12, though. Wow. Uh, in middle school, we had a music class and we started teaching kids guitar, you know? So we learned a few chords and took it from there. But I've loved that. I've just loved music since as far back as I can remember, you know? Well, I want to talk about also, Steve, um, the songwriting process. Um, as the band's songwriter, we're curious about your approach to songwriting, we've learned from other songwriters that we've talked to 
So there are a few different ways songs are written. Some start with the music first, some start with the lyrics, some yeah. simply a result of experiences. So we want to know how do well, every song Everything you've heard is true. You know, there's some come to you overnight. <laughs> you know, some come in a dream. Some you work on for days and days and nothing ever comes out of it. Uh, some start with a little riff. Um, uh, Working with the things, especially so a lot of times, I just brought in a song that I kind of thought I, you know, was pretty much done, and then I let the let those guys do their thing, and it would turn into something different, you know. So it's it's there's a million ways to do it. the 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 key is to don't give up; just keep doing it till it's done, you know. I know too many people start a song and they ask for help, and then you no, go finish it yourself, and <laughs> you know, do it that way. Um, I'm very, uh, as Roy probably can admit to, that I'm very uh, protective, you know. Uh, if I don't like what they're doing, I'll say something. But yeah, uh, I, I tried really hard to get. <laughs> that came quick, huh? Well, no, no. I, tried, I mean, I like, really know, hard to make it. Collaboration is not easy, you know, and especially if you have this idea in your head and you—that's that's what you want to put out. It, yeah, exactly. And and the cool thing about working with those guys is I wrote songs around those guys. Oh. Uh, we were a two guitar bass drum band and I, I had three guys that, that knew exactly, exactly what I wanted, especially with Roy, you know, and I've, I don't know if I've told him this, but uh, what I dug about his drumming is, is like Ringo. Ringo listened to John as a rhythm guitar player. You know, he, he played his hi-hat around the strum. Roy was one of the first, in fact, the first drummer that I actually listened to my strum on guitar. So uh, anything I brought to rehearsal or practice, he picked up on right away, you know, just by watching me. Yeah, and we and that's absolutely true. And thank you, but that's absolutely true because because that's I mean Keith Keith Richards always says the same thing like that 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 Charlie would play off of him. He wasn't really he wasn't really playing off of Bill Wyman. He was playing off of Keith. It's the same right. thing. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, we 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 played a lot a lot off of each other. I I I tend to do that. I tend to play off of off the guitarist off the rhythm guitar you more still do, yeah. than, than necessarily the bass. Yeah, that's unusual because like, usually you hear the rhythm section. It's the bass and the drummer locking in and step. Well, you know, and a lot and a lot of drummers think that way. And that was the cool thing about work with Roy because he didn't. You know, you, you know, that's if you really listen to the Beatle records, Paul sits on top while John and, and Ringo are kind of covering the whole rhythm section there. You know? mm -hmm. That's very. Yeah. Yeah. Paul, Paul would quite often record the bass last. Oh, is that right? Yes. Yes. If you, he, he would sometimes record it last so that he could play, play, you know, cause he's playing melodies over it. He's oh, not yeah. necessarily playing, you know, a straight bass line. So he's, you know, he, he layers on top of the arrangement. Wow. My mind's blown. Now I got to go back and listen to some, probably the more, more so the, the, the later well, see, period stuff. And, and Steve and I would talk about this stuff. We geek out on like listening to, to songs, you know, and talking about like you isn't that cool how they did the how you know how paul did that and you know it's just you know yeah. so it, it informed what we did that's very interesting to me as as a wannabe musician <laughs> i find that very interesting <laughs> well okay so we wanted to start talking about the records including i'm holding up the the your first album colored heaven so this one was released in 1984 on rocks records Someone on my mind, and she's still 
Roy, can you tell us about the recording session, how that was going in to record it? From, from what I understand, you guys went into Mel's Sound of Music and it was engineered by Tom Manassian, right? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah I mean, these are our, these are the demos that we basically made. We go in, I mean, and they were recorded at two different times because if I remember correctly, Steve, we, we went in and did about four, four songs and then we... Every time we learned maybe four or five songs, we'd go in and record it. We'd go in and record it. And, and it was kind of for ourselves and, but they always, they always sounded really good. And then we, you know, we, we brought them to Greg thinking, we just want you to hear this stuff that we're doing. Well, actually we brought it to Rodney first. That's what we yeah. did. We brought it to Rodney first yeah. and, and he played it immediately. He played it like as we were driving home from dropping the tape off to wow. him and he answered the door and which he didn't do later, later on. Um, and, and he, we were driving home and he played it and we couldn't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and from there, Greg Shaw contacted us and we started getting some gigs. He started arranging some gigs. We did that show at the music machine with the Pandoras and the forgiven, I think. And it was like, yeah, I remember that, that one in particular. And, um, and we were talking about, yeah, we want to record a record. And he goes, well, I just think we should just put this one out. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they were were low budget and and (laughs) they, 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 our, our demos probably sounded a little bit better than a lot of the records they were recording in some of the studios they were using. Yeah, you know, that's so true. Was, Greg Shaw was pretty excited by those demos and just wanted to do that. And then promised us afterwards, you know, we'll get this first record going, then I'll put you guys in a real studio and, and you can go record a record, you know. And that's what we did, second record, you know. Yeah, but yeah exactly. those, those were Those were demo tapes, that whole first album. And then it was, uh, Pete the bass player was actually fired just, days before we signed the contract you yeah know? so he never even got to put his name on the on the record contract we had hired bob and larry by then by then yeah and 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 you know the the last song on the record seems to be raining was actually recorded in steve's garage so we didn't that wasn't even at a, at a studio okay we recorded that in steve's garage on a pretty you know, would now be considered a pretty primitive four track. Okay. Four track, four track cassette. Yeah. Four track cassette. And, and Rodney played, probably played that, that song more than any of the other songs on the record. Okay. Yeah, he, I remember he said it had the Avalon ballroom sound. That was his. <laughs> That's uh, right. So, That's right. so can yeah. you tell us about recording the demos? How did, was that also on a four track cassette or was that on? Eight track, wasn't it? 
That was a, that was an, that was an eight track uh, half inch tape. Okay. You know, it was it was actually pretty state of the art for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Mel, the guy that owned the the, it was a music store, and he had a little recording studio in the back, and that's what he really wanted to do is set up a recording studio. So he used his music store as a front, and he, he invested a lot of money in a a really nice eight track recording setup. You know, uh, and we were one of the first people to actually go in there and and start recording with him. Uh, you know, we were pretty green. We had no idea what we were doing. You know, we just went in there and, and we played the songs and Tom set up the mics and we'd go back in. And, and quite honestly, for me personally, no matter how it sounded, I was just excited to hear, hear something coming out of the speakers, you know? No, so, no. I mean, anything with any kind of fidelity, you know, I was like, oh my God, this sounds like a real, <laughs> like a real record. I don't think there are any take twos, you know? <laughs> no, no. So did you guys do the... Did you do basic tracks first and overdubs, or was the demo yeah. just live? We do live, the three of us, and then we go you add guitars and the vocals last and all that kind of stuff, okay. yeah. So was the intention to build up to an album as you're doing three, four songs in a row? Well, you know, I, I don't know that an album was in, it was just a matter of, we were, we were in a band and we just wanted to record. We really, we, we wanted a record contract, we wanted all that stuff. But literally, when we first started out, we we weren't gigging like the three o'clock and those kind of bands. We were we were struggling trying to find gigs. You no, know? We, we were playing, playing in like basements, opening up for like hair. You know, this we were opening up for this hair band yeah. a couple of times in in, in Whittier. Was it? <laughs> yeah, we we couldn't get a gig to save yeah. our life. And Rodney Bingenheimer was really the one that 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 uh that kind of got the whole thing going. Once we got played on his show, he he gave Greg Shaw the tapes. He was pretty excited about it and. Next thing you know, we got we got this record contract and, and we're starting to play gigs. And now that's kind of why we fired our original bass players. He was good and all, but um, Roy and I knew we could be better. You know? Yeah, you know, we did it. I remember like one of our earliest things is we did a showcase at the Ice House in Pasadena. Remember that? Right. Yeah. But that was like, you know, it was kind of like, you, you, you know, you had the tickets that you had to sell. Some of those, if I remember. Yeah, it was on a Tuesday. Was, you know, the first show was great. A lot of our family members were there. And, yeah, yeah. And 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 but we, you know, I still remember that as like a, a like a kind of a real gig. And and I remember the, all those early ones, like because it was just like it was so new, just to even gig. You know, it was anything, even right. those basement shows. You know, probably twenty people there, but there were a couple of cute girls, and you were playing. You know, you were playing, and it was exciting. You know, so. Right. You got to remember too. We were nineteen, twenty years old, not just out of high school. You were still in high school, I think. I was, yeah, I was yeah. still in high school. Yeah. yeah, and 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 then once we started doing shows, we did a lot. I remember we did a lot of Madame Wong's East and mostly West, though. And we'd be, I mean, those were brutal. You know, we'd, we'd be on at like one in, one in the morning on a Tuesday, yeah. and you know, ten people, and it was just you know, we we definitely paid dues, you know, at some of those. <laughs> <laughs> that was a funny story. We were playing a Madame Wong's West on a Wednesday or Tuesday, really late. And they were literally, my brother and a buddy were the only people in the audience. And this, and this girl, Lori, who comes up to us afterwards, with that, oh, yes. plays nobody and says, hey, great shot wants to sign you guys. <laughs> it, it, was, it was a Spinal Tap moment because we had, we had no right. audience. That's you know? right. Yeah. And, and we're going to get a record contract from that. <laughs> yes. You know, so, Yeah. And, and, and did we we didn't really know until we opened the box of the final albums what the album really looked like right we had, we had no idea we had no idea 
Yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't like it either. They didn't share the artwork <laughs> with us, is what we're saying. Is <laughs> Yeah. So we watched the documentary, Soraya and I, and we kind of know, but can you tell our <laughs> Another listeners? story. <laughs> yeah, can you share that for our listeners about this cover with us? Yeah. Well, I think they probably used the whole box of colored pencils, though. Oh, and we used to, I mean, that was a joke, as we call it, color, instead of colored head, we called it colored pencil. <laughs> <laughs> If you see the original photograph of those three guys, right, um, it's got this beautiful blue sky and it's just a really gorgeous picture. Uh, and when we get it back, we see these coloring marks and, and now, and you can't even tell that's the three of us in the, on the front, you know. And then when they wrote everything out, you can't, I looked at it, I had to kind of, does that say the things colored heaven? What does that really say? Oh, the you back? Know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's. It, yeah, the, it they was, overdid the psychedelic lettering to the point where he was illegible. You couldn't read it, you know. I mean, he... <laughs> uh, and I remember asking him, and he's like, "Well, it's too late, man." We, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no we know it's too late now. Here. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I would like to tell you guys that um, I, I I live down in southern california um down near san diego and um i lived real close to encinitas there was a record store down there called lose records and i would uh there was a record uh radio best or radio tokyo tapes that's the one that changed all my life so that's when i started listening to la bands so after that rather than looking at the judas priest the iron maiden section the ozzy osbourne section i started looking in the independent section and flipping through those and um it was the covers that drew me in and it was actually this cover of Colored Heaven that made me interested in buying it. I had no idea who the things were. Um, it was before. Uh, well, you knew, you knew it wasn't going to be a metal record, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then it had the Vox record label um, yeah. icon on the back. So that, for me, anything that came out on Vox, I knew would be kind of up my alley. So I understand what you guys are saying about the cover, but it was actually the cover is what attracted well, me that, to buy. That's that's good to hear. That's actually good to hear. Yes. And, and having said all that, we were just excited to have a record period. So it, it oh, was yeah. a it was a complaint, but it didn't last very long. We were like, okay, let's just move forward, and that's because we were excited, you know. So. And, and 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 I, I we used to have that. I mean, I had that Radio Tokyo tapes album that you're talking about. That was, you know, yeah. those are all those bands. That, those are all the bands that, you know, we used to go see. We used to, Steve and I would go see three o'clock all the time. Long Riders, um, you know, the the Bangles. We saw all those. We saw all those bands. Yeah. yeah, I always think it's weird to me when somebody says that a record changed their life. I think it seems kind of heavy-handed, and I know it's true in some cases, but that record actually changed everything. It was before then everything had to be commercially viable and big um, MTV stuff again like the the heavier rock stuff but that that made me look at art a whole uh, in a whole new way so independent film independent visual artists it was that record that it literally changed my life so if it wasn't for that the things would never have been in <laughs> been in my radar so we you know we knew that we when we I mean when we saw the three o'clock at the palace and it was sold out and it was like going to see the Beatles, you know, at the cow palace or something, just something, something had changed. Cause this is a band that we had gone to see in clubs and, you know, clubs in orange County. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, and we, that's what we kind of felt like, Oh my God, there, you know, there are other people out there who listen to the same stuff that we did. 
because right. you know we you know we well, you know what? we didn't really listen to the same music that a lot of our contemporaries at the time did. Well, see, that, that was the cool thing about catching three o'clock by accident that night. That that I don't know. Were you with us? I know I was with Pete. Were you with us at the Roxy? You may not have been. I don't. Maybe. I don't know if I was. No. We went. We went to see the Plimsolls, and and it was sold out. Roxy was sold out. Um, but it was when three o'clock came out and played, and by the time they were done, uh, and maybe his life changed. I don't know. But it, I knew right then. I knew exactly what our band. Should, I wanted to do that anyway, but I wasn't quite sure. After seeing those guys, I was like, "Yeah, we can do this. I want to do this." Um, you know, I, I was a fan of all that stuff, and these guys were playing feel a whole lot better. Who else was playing that stuff? And, mm-hmm. They did Lucifer Sam. I, I thought I was the only guy on the planet that ever heard that song. <laughs> you know, yeah. suddenly these guys are doing it. You know, and they're doing it in front of a, an audience, and the, and the people were loving it. So yeah, that was uh, I don't want to say life changing, but it was a big moment for me. That's for sure. You know. So that gig was the three o'clock opening up for the Plimsolls. Opening for the Plimsolls at the Roxy. Okay. Yeah, early maybe late '82, early '83, somewhere around there. Okay. I think I was at that show because I went to that. I, I remember seeing the Plimsolls at the Roxy. They were the Salvation Army, and they they yeah. just changed their name right afterwards. I think that yeah. was their last Salvation Army gig or something. You know. I wanted to ask a follow up question because one of the things that we've noticed when we've talked to other bands is the importance of getting a song played on Rodney's show. And I, I, I find it really interesting uh, how things started happening after Rodney. What is it that you think made Rodney have that impact on so many different bands? Because Roy, I like what you said that um, I finally figured out that other people were listening to the sort of things that I was listening to or that my friends were listening to. What is, how, why is it that Rodney had his finger on the pulse of things that were going to change the music scene in LA and really have that impact for so long? Because people still referred to his influence now. Roy? I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it's just because he, he takes a lot of chances on, on new bands and, and is very open to, and if you like something, he will just play it. I mean, you hear about these DJs who, oh, I'm all free form and all that. And then they, you know, put on Pink Floyd, you know, or something from the wall, you know. He actually, you know, I mean, we gave him a cassette, we got in our car, we're driving back and he played it. So, and you know, he hadn't even, li- you know, he might've listened to like a song before, you know, you know, before he went on air and, and thought, oh, this is good. And let's, yeah, let's put it on. Right. He did it all the time, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, at the time, at the time too, he had a, he had prime time on uh, Saturday, Sunday, eight to twelve, I think it was. Yeah. So, um, and I don't know how I heard about him. I mean, I heard the name of Rodney on the Rock, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I caught him one night, and it was all this different kind of music. But he was mixing it with all these, you know, Happiness Ten Years Time by Yardbirds and uh, yeah. All these songs we loved. Monkeys tracks and yeah, you know. so that that I think kind of drew me in. And in between that, you were hearing the Plimsolls and the Three O'clock and the Bagels, yeah. uh, whatever was happening in town. Um, I, I couldn't tell you why Rodney knows this stuff. He just he just kind of did. I don't know, you know. Uh, lucky for us, he kind of saw something in us right off the bat. Like what I was saying, we were we weren't. It was ten minutes after we dropped off the tape that we were driving mm-hmm. back. Yeah. We couldn't uh, believe it. We really, we literally couldn't believe it. And he was coming out of his punk, kind of his, he was coming out of his punk phase and going more into his 
60s phase. I mean, because when, when he answered the door, he still had, you know, his spiky hair. And pretty quickly after that, he had the bowl haircut. That's right. Wow. That's right. You know, and he played, I mean, he he got very much into playing all those all those bands. Um, you know, he played he played a lot of the Pandoras, he played, you know, played the Bangles a lot, you know. So he always championed and, and he and he always championed LA bands. That's another, you know, thing. Right. Very cool. It so, changed uh, I mean it changed everything. That's when we got gigs, that's when we got yeah. Greg Shaw came into our lives and and it just literally overnight changed everything. Nice. So that's a good segue for me because my next question I wanted to talk about Greg Shaw and the impact that he had on the band. And you guys mentioned that playing at Madame Wong's to your brother. <laughs> and uh, somebody came up and said that Greg wanted to sign you. Can you tell us a little bit about Greg and the Vox label and how that was being a recording artist for that label? I, well, I, I had never heard of Greg. Roy's the one who told me about Greg. He he had heard that somebody was coming to check us out that worked for Greg. Um, and I'm like, well, who's Greg Shaw? And Roy's, you know, he's telling me, hey, this guy that, you know, Bump Records and uh, Bump Magazine, he used to write for Rolling Stone. So already I was kind of like getting a little starstruck with this guy I'd never heard of before, you know. Um, but, you know, we went down to his, we met him down at his uh, warehouse record, record store, record studio, whatever it was. Um, had a meeting with him. He's a really shy guy, you know, super, super nice. Um, he seemed very genuine. He really liked the tape a lot and really wanted to, to do something with us. And then we were kind of looking at his roster and there were all these bands that I'd never heard of before, but he was really passionate about them. You know, he didn't have a lot of money to spend. He was just in it for the, the love of music. Um, we were young and naive. We would have signed with anybody, to be honest. You know, anybody offered us a record deal, we would have done it. We got lucky though that we met him off the back. He, re he really genuinely liked the band. Yeah. You know? And he was trying to fit us with what he thought would be a good fit for us to go out there and start doing this, you know. So it was him that got us off the ground. He started booking gigs. He even built a club to to house his bands, you know. Well, didn't build it, but rented up some space and created this little weekend get-together for the scene, you know, to have all his bands and even out-of-town bands like, like what we were doing come in and play. He was really, really, uh, uh, he was a genuine music lover. Yeah. And he was in it just for the music not for the money. I mean, when we first went there, I remember he gave us a bunch of records, you know, a bunch of, he, he put out those Pebbles records, you know, so right. he gave us a bunch of those, I want you to listen to this. Oh, you kind of like, you know, this sounds like this band. And then even, you know, old copies of Phonograph Record Magazine, like I started grabbing those and because he, he, he published that and a lot of his writings were in there. So I started reading a lot of what he wrote and he's a, he's a great writer, passionate about music, was in love with like power pop and all of that, which is, you know, was right. our alley. And frankly, wasn't really a big part of his overall roster <laughs> on Fox Records. It was very, it was very garage and, and we really weren't, you know, and, and, and that was pointed out to us by, <laughs> by, many, by every, many of by those everybody. The scene. <laughs> <laughs> by everybody, yeah. yeah. We were we were we were kind of in, we were in limbo. We were we were couldn't quite fit into the Paisley Underground because we were too too late to the to the party. And then we were with these other bands, nice people, great hang, but musically we were yeah, uh, yeah. doing something completely different. And they let us know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean we were we were more like you know psychedelic pop and you know 
there was just a lot of, you know, there's a lot of chocolate watch band going around and like that kind of, you right. know, you know, what I and call and... <laughs> what I call sometimes the junior varsity of the 60s scene. Because <laughs> we were like, hey, how about the Rolling Stones? I mean, they did all this stuff a lot better and so did the Kinks and you know. <laughs> but I mean like we, you know, those are the bands that we listen to, I mean, all the time, you know. The Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Who, the Kinks, the Monkees, um, you know, Buffalo Springfield, and extent, you know, by extension of that, Neil Young. Um, we were not afraid to like like '70s bands, you know. That was a big, <laughs> that was kind of a big no-no. Yeah, yeah. We were we were we were going to some of these gigs and doing covers of like Southern Man or <laughs> yeah, yeah, know, Brown Sugar or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we were, you know, we were just, we were just a band. We were like any other band. We wanted to make records for a living. And, and I don't think we were trying to so much pigeonhole ourselves. I think we put on Paisley shirts and we got kind of called a Paisley Underground, uh, 60s garage kind of band. Um, but when I look back at some of the tunes, if you took away the Paisleys, they were just good rock and roll pop tunes, I thought. Yeah. You know? It's all the stuff that we, you know, I mean, it's all the stuff that I still listen to. Yeah. Um, but we liked a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, I mean, I like Bruce Springsteen, you know, I mean, it's just, we didn't, you know, it's just, it was a very, sometimes it was a very narrow scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've, I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, when people ask us too about our podcast, they go, well, it was a moment in time, but it was a great moment in time. Oh, was it? No, yeah. Don't get me wrong. It was a fantastic, I mean, the cavern scene, you know, Steve was talking about that Greg, once Greg opened that club up, that was like where we all congregated every Saturday night and, you know, mostly spent it outside in that little parking area, hanging yeah. out. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was funny because Steve had a, had a really nice PA, um, but these speaker, speaker cabinets that were just like, were they homemade? They were all made. They, they sounded sounded great, but they were made out of you know six inch wood. <laughs> and we would have to trudge them up these stairs because they didn't have Cavern didn't have its own PA. So, and we always sounded great in that place because we you know brought the PA, but it was a pain in the butt. And then a lot of the other bands like wanted to like <laughs> yeah, they started Steve, they started hiring the me Pandora. The they always did it. Yeah. That's, that's hilarious. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I remember that. So at the time that you guys start uh, playing more shows, um, we were just curious. Um, what what did it feel like now going to these shows and seeing you know more people attending? Like oh, was, Jeff and I are just curious. It was you know, awesome. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it yeah. was great. Um, we felt like rock stars. Yeah. Um, and we played some, actually, some gigs were, were bigger than, than others. And those are the ones that were really, you know, we played at USC, I think, one time. USC at UCLA, we opened for Fishbone. Do you remember that? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, but not. In a, we played, yeah, it was, we opened for Fishbone, but it's a huge crowd. But it was the first time that we had like a uh, state of the art PA. It was the first time we heard ourselves back. A oh. Yeah. Uh, and I remember that feeling that that that's one of the things I remember most about playing live is that gig, how good it sounded back at us for the first time, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how, how we all reacted to it differently. Oh, wow. We, we sound like this and everybody was playing better. 
everybody can hear was playing tighter. Yeah. And it just made, it really made you want to, those, that was the standard. I don't want to go back to these little, you know. Yeah, and it wasn't, the, and, and it, you know, because we were opening for Fishbone, it, was, it, wasn't, it also wasn't the same, like, 50 people that would go see us. You know, 100 people that would go see us, you know, in the, you know. <laughs> it was a different crowd, a little, lot new, all new faces for one, you know. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, you know, uh, it was, it was, it was thrilling, man, to be playing for bigger crowds. Yeah. yeah. That's, what, that's why we like doing what we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Before, before, before the cavern, there was this place in downtown LA, um, next to the hip hop place. What was that place called? Radiotron or something. And it was the, the, the but the place, it was the rave up. Remember? Remember oh, that? Uh, Jerome. 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 Yeah. It was downtown, and 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 Steve and I would drive out there, and it was a gnarly part of downtown. It was right across the street from MacArthur Park. Right across the street from MacArthur Park says yeah. says it all. And we would get, you know, <laughs> Steve and I would go get like like a bottle of wine, <laughs> bottle of something, <laughs> bottle of something, sit in the parking lot drink it and then go in there and that was like where all the you know all, everyone from that whole scene congregated before um greg opened the cavern in I, hollywood and it had this crazy stage where there was really the, the the drum riser was really high it was like all these different levels remember that we played every time you go back he added something else to it we call it the incredible shrinking stage because it kept getting bigger <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I remember uh, that's I met Michael Corsio there that night. Him and I hung out and drank drink together, and we had this debate on who was the better Beatle, John or Paul. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he's a Paul fan. I was a John fan, so we were going back and forth on, on why I thought my guy was better than his guy. You know? I remember seeing Kathy Valentine there right after the Go Go's broke broke up, and Rodney was there, and I remember her looking at him and like being all sad and hugging him, and just. Just a I weird snapshot. I remember that night. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, I do. Wow. Lots of experiences. And one of the things that we really enjoy about talking to some of the bands from the scene is like the camaraderie and that a lot of these artists and musicians had. So, but um, Steve, you alluded to something earlier. Well, actually, you said it straight out, and I, I wanted to talk about. So, after Colored Heaven, even before it came out, um, your bass player, Pete, is it Pete? Rouch? He rushed. Rouch. He so he was no longer in the band, wanted in the band, right? And you move on to Bob Weir, who's a friend of, I think it was a friend of yours, Roy? Well, right. yeah. See, Bob, I met Steve through Andre Garcia, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And Andre Garcia and, 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 and Steve and Pete and I played for a little bit, I think, as a four piece briefly. Very short time. Yeah. Very short time. Yeah, Andre and I were, you know, knew each other from, you know, from high school, and we knew Andre was in a band with Mike Sosa, who ended up in the things later. And Mike Sosa and I were both in drum corps together um, in, in 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 high school, so that's how we knew each other. And um, so everyone, and 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 look, it was a it was a very small scene of people who weren't listening to Judas Priest. <laughs> you know, we were listening to the Ramones and punk, you know what I mean? It was just, there was a yeah. small group of us that were listening to other music, music other than like Sticks and Journey and what was going on at that time. And um, so Andre, you know, so, and Andre was in a band with uh, Bob Weir and Mike Sosa. So 
that's how that's how we got the Bob and, and Larry Klein was in a band with with um, with Mike and and Bob um, yeah. for a while. So that's that's kind of how we all got to you know got to know each other. I, I met I met Steve through Andre. Andre dropped out, um, and then we told you know th then somehow we got we got Bob. We 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 I think we auditioned Bob or something, <laughs> and then we played with him, and then we decided to tell Pete. Yeah, yeah, but I but I met those guys through you. I didn't know them beforehand. Yeah, and then yeah. Bob was very insistent upon bringing Larry in. Okay. Like I remember he said, like we we need we need another guitarist. You know, like he was like it was funny because Bob was very quiet, but I remember him. He was the one I think who suggested Larry. Yeah, yeah. So Steve, how did you feel about the lineup change? Oh, I loved it. I, I'm a I'm a Neil Young Crazy Horse fan, so I I always wanted two guitars, bass drum. Uh, with Beatle vocals, that's what I that was what I envisioned, and those guys were the closest even since that I've come to that. You yeah, know? I mean Larry's a great guitar player, and Bob's yeah. a great bass player, and I I knew they were a known quantity to me from their from their other band, so I knew that they would be it, they'd be perfect. Yeah, overnight we were a better band when they joined. It was just it, it was kind of like uh, to equate it to when three o'clock replace the original drummer with Danny, different band, way better. Uh, the songs fit better. That's that's kind of how it was for us. As soon as those guys joined, it was um, for me. That was that was the things we've had players after Roy and before, you know. But that that core, those four guys, that was that was the perfect things band for me, you know. And Roy, I I wanted to take this opportunity now that we're talking about that lineup. Jeff and I wanted to ask about how you developed your your performance style because uh Jeff and I have talked about when we see you on stage and you know in the documentary there's some great clips shared and we've seen other things uh you're like Keith Moon or you know or like Animal you know <laughs> from the Muppet. I mean your style is amazing and we just want to know how did you develop that style how did it evolve playing all the records at first I mean <laughs> I mean, I, is coffee you know, involved? I, I want to know if coffee is involved. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, that's how I played because, you know, there were other drummers in the scene that would be like very deliberately flashy in terms of like, um, you know, it's just getting getting into the, the you know, the performance of it and clicking. And, you know, I mean, I, <clears throat> I played along to records and it started out like playing along to, um, get your yayas out because that's just a great way to you know great way to get groove because just there's no one better at that kind of behind the beat feel than than charlie watts mm -hmm. and then you know you get better and you start your skills get a little better and you start going oh god i can do this and then you start playing along the more complicated and you know then i try to start playing along the live at leeds and and you kind of have to play like that <laughs> to get that sound to, to produce that sound and then when and then when we and then when when Steve and I started playing together, I didn't play the records anymore. I mean, pretty much after that, I played in a, you know, just when we just when we would rehearse. And I've been kind of like that ever since. It's like I don't I don't sit by myself and play or anything like that. It's just it's really a reaction to the music, you know. I I always equate it's, it's like you're dancing. Yes, uh, the yes. Drums. That's that's what I always thought you were like. Just this this cool looking dancer on the drums, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, yeah, I, and then there's things I do. I throw the sticks in the air and stuff like that, trick, trick stuff and just performance type stuff. But when I'm playing, I have to do that to get the sound, you know, it would be like that in rehearsal too. I mean, it's just, you kind of have to do that. Yeah, I don't, we don't think we ever actually rehearsed, we jammed. We jammed, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, speaking about jamming, in 1986, this album comes out, so I'm holding it in my hand outside my window. That also released on Vox, Vox Records. And this, yeah. this record has a definite, much more heavier sound than the previous album. Was that development and style, was it a natural progression from Colored Heaven into Outside My Window? Because, I mean, there's some, I think there's some wah on here. Sounds like there's a little bit more fuzz. Yeah, it, well, it was, it was a natural progression. We were heading that way anyway. And like I say, once Bob and Larry joined the band, it was, you start thinking about what these guys can add, you know, yeah. what they can do. And, I, you know, I was a, you know, I was just learning how to write songs first record I was getting better at it by now um, I had played with these guys for a while kind of knew we were kind of forming a sound already yeah um, and I was like I was heavily influenced by what was going on around the scene you know uh, things by the, the three o'clock the Bengals and and you know I was I was really into forever changes during this time yes you know, that, that that album had a big big effect on me you know because um, there were these really well surreal kind of songs with these great string arrangements uh and if you listen to that record there's there's a couple times where we tried it with you know synths and stuff like that to get these kind of string kind of things going um but uh, i really wanted to do you know the xtc kind of uh, orchestrated kind of tunes you know we wanted to do a sergeant pepper kind of record we knew you know we couldn't do anything that elaborate but we were thinking like that you know some of those songs couldn't be played live you know? yeah absolutely i mean it's 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 more it's it's first it's that lineup it's that it's the only record with that particular lineup right. and and it was conceived as a record you know and we had more time and we we we, we were able to think as you know Colored Heaven, I mean, I love Colored Heaven, but, you know, it was, we would go and, you know, we'd get some songs together, we'd go, you know, go go record, we did it twice, and then we put a, a, a another song right. at the end. It wasn't really thought of, it was just, it was our first, our first songs as a band, and we were just capturing them on tape, whereas this, we were kind of thinking like a record, and we wanted to sound like this, and, you know, and, yeah, so I think there was, there was, there was a lot more thought put into it. Right, right. We went in the studio knowing we were making a record, not some demos or not just a song here and there. And so we had a ton of tunes. We picked the ones we thought would, would work best together too. There's a couple songs that we, extra songs we recorded that never made it anywhere. They're still out there somewhere. So we picked the best or what we thought were the best, the ones we were most excited about at the time anyway. Um, so this record was recorded at West Beach Studios, right? And this is where, is this where um, the Bad Religion, Brett Gerwitz comes into the picture? Brett Gerwitz, yeah. yeah. 
and he comes in at at this point. Yes. Yep. Yep. Well, yep. They, we through Greg. Greg Which Shaw had he had been working at another at that studio. Yeah, he was working. Greg was or Greg was recording all his bands at another studio. Uh, Silver Moon. Silvery Moon, yeah. We went in there and recorded two tunes, and we just hated the experience. It didn't sound good. And, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we were a bit whiny at the time with Greg. We were kind of demanding that he treat us better, you know. Um, and we talked him into to doing something else. Well, he knew Brett, and Brett was, um, Brett was just getting into building a recording studio. So we were the first band that he recorded. Uh, and he rented this space with another studio. And, and they were actually still building his studio or his control room as we were working there. So, um, and Greg worked out a deal for 500 bucks. He could record a whole record, you know, so we could, wow. Is that how much that was? I never knew. <laughs> yeah, he, and he only paid 500 bucks for us to go in there. We spent a lot of time in there too. Kind of oh yeah. Um, but Brett was learning too. He was, he was, it was all new to him and him and a buddy. Um, and so, yeah, it was, he, he had had state-of-the-art equipment. He's, you know, he's a, he comes from a wealthy family and they were, they were helping him out, get this thing going. So he was being able to spend top dollar on all, you know, he had these great monitors and great boards, mm -hmm. but he didn't know how to use it very well. He's still learning it. So, um, but he had a lot of energy. I mean, he had a lot of, he, he was great to hang out with. He was yeah. great to hang out with. He was funny. He lightened things up. I really liked, I really liked working with, with, with Brett. I feel like he kind of, yeah. you know, had we just, you know, maybe just did the record with him it might have turned <laughs> it might have been less dramatic <laughs> yeah yeah to, to to add to that whole time there were a lot of people whispering in our ears how we you know you guys are getting screwed by the record company to get, get yeah. out of it um so we were you know we were being pulled in all these different directions at that time you know, so at the time there, there was a lot of weirdness going on with that whole situation too you know yeah um so i know that you guys were talking about pulling in different producers even there was you had mentioned Steve on the documentary a different producer for every song but you end up with the Spinal Tap drummer producer Mick Shrimpton producing <laughs> we did. for now yeah yeah so how did yeah. how did he come into the picture again uh, a friend of our well at the time we were like say we we had this I came up with this idea uh and we all thought it was brilliant because you know, we were nobodies and we thought, well, let's get Michael Corsio to produce one song. Let's get Sid Griffin to produce another song. All these people that we liked, all the bands that we knew had an audience. Mm -hmm. You know, if word got out that these guys were work working with this band, everybody that likes them will come and see what they're doing. Yeah. It's kind of, yeah. you know, we just wanted, we we're already kind of thinking of self-promotion. Um, as far as we got was, was we sent out word to Mike Corsio. He said he was interested, but I never talked to him personally. Uh, but Sid Griffin wanted to do it. And he came down and, and hung yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and and then so an, our friend Judy brought another guy. This guy he brought Mick Shrimpton. You know, he's like, well, here's one more guy to add to the list that we're gonna, who's going to do this. But as it, as it started to kind of try to get this organized, it was just getting too chaotic. Um, and he was down and out on his luck, and he just wanted to come in and do the whole thing for. We I think we paid him two hundred bucks to produce the whole record. You know, so it turned out to be a financial kind of thing. And we liked him. He was a nice guy. He kind of seemed to know what he was doing. Um, so that's how he ended up. He was just one of many that we had chosen to do this. And as we narrowed it down to kind of, oh, let's just get one guy and, and, and keep this cheap and on the, on the cheap, we'll have him do it, you know. Um, and he wanted to, and he was kind of fun for a while. 
for a while. <laughs> for a while. Yeah. Uh, so that yeah, and she was he was a friend of a, of a mutual friend. Okay. You know, that came along and he had a lot of good Spinal Tap stories. You know, so yeah, he was he kind did, of funny. Yeah. Like <laughs> and 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 he was um, he was a good foil for Brett. He and Brett. They had they yeah. had a lot of differences. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. I, I can imagine that environment being yeah. strange for recording. But we had a blast. I mean, we had fun recording that. I remember having a lot of fun recording. We that. did. We had a lot of fun in the studio. Um, uh, another little tidbit: all the all the twelve string electric guitars we used Paula's Paula Pierce from Pandora's uh, Rickenbacker. Remember that? Oh my God! I forgot about she that. Left, she left her guitar in the studio one night. <laughs> before she takes it home, <laughs> let's record all these tunes in a 12-string guitar. Every day we spend a night recording all those all the songs that we needed a 12-string on. <laughs> you know, I wanted to ask a question. I'm so glad you brought that up. One of the things that we were curious about is we know that you played with bands that you had similar interests, uh, shared some similar interests with, like the Pandora's, the Telltale Hearts. And we were cur curious what that scene was like with these other bands like was there that camaraderie where you know oh Paula left her guitar okay we're gonna you know well, yeah. we'll put that in. yeah I mean there were there were some I mean I can tell you about some great parties uh that we uh that we had at um you know we had our, our ma a manager for a while Lori Spilka um and uh she used to have these parties and all the bands would show up I think it was when for some reason it was in between when the rave up closed down and the cavern opened up and then there got to be a thing where just you know you know all these all these all the same bands would gather you know and yeah. try to outdress each other and it was it was it was you know we were all we were all in our late teens and early 20s and um and then and then in between the time in between those clubs there was a lot of parties we'd go to different parties and um and they'd get quite wild uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, if, if there wasn't a gig that one of the bands was playing at, there was a party going on. So we were busy doing something every weekend. Yeah. Uh, either going to going to party where they were at or going to see another band that all the other bands were going to see. Yeah. And we were definitely very close with the Pandoras. We we played a lot of gigs with those guys. We Even outside of the big parties, we still kind of hung out with them. Yeah, between, yeah. You know, I mean, Melanie and, Melanie and I hung out, you know, quite a bit together, yeah. um, you know, we, I was, I was with Melanie when I was with Melanie when, when we ran into Kim and when Kim joined the band. So imagine. Oh, know. okay, okay. Yeah, we oh. were at a, we were at a uh, vintage clothing store in Costa Mesa. Um, and it was right before because Kim's first show was at Fender's Ballroom, right? The night was, we played, the, we opened for him. Yeah, we opened for him at Fender's Ballroom, and that was the. That was a, a, you know, ballroom in Long Beach, and 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 it was a Rodney show. Rodney introduced us. Rodney introduced all the bands, um, and that was the first. That was the first gig Kim played, but yeah, we were all close. We'd all go out. We'd be at parties together. Um, like I said, you know, Paula would always like somehow convince Steve to bring his PA to the cavern and touch those <laughs> up and do you know do sound for them. So yeah, yeah, there was a lot of. Look, we were all, you know, we were, we, we all had, you know, shared interests and we were all young and it was a lot, it was like, it was, a, it was a great time. Yeah. I only got to see the things once and it was, uh, you guys were 
playing, the Pandoras were playing. It was at UCSD in San Diego. I don't remember what the venue was, but uh, there was tons of people in this in this place. It was an unusual unusual setup. Um, the state, La Jolla? In, in La Jolla. In La Jolla. Uh, Trident Pub. Is that what the name of it was? Yeah, yeah. That was your last gig, right? That was my last gig. Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah, oh, was wow. Last... Yeah, that was a great show. That was the only time that I got to see you guys play. It was a, it was amazing. That place was packed out, and everybody was into it. I that I remember that show. That was that was a blast. It was bittersweet because we knew Roy was leaving, but we had a blast. We had a blast. Yeah, that was. I mean, that we went we went out with a bang. That was a great show. I for, I actually forgot that we were playing with the Pandoras, but it doesn't surprise me. I mean, look, the Pandoras was a, they were the first band that we actually had a a proper gig with. I mean, outside of like the Ice House and all that that one show at the music machine and that was the that was the the pandoras with gwen and um and bambi and casey that was mm -hmm. before that was before the change right yeah that was like an early gig i think it was i think you know it was right after the whole rodney thing we we and, never played with the with the original lineup it was it was with melanie and whoever came afterwards um but yeah you're right that was the first proper gig we had with those guys. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea that was your last show, Roy. Yeah, you yeah. saw them. Yeah, you saw them. Good thing you rode home with me that night, man. Yeah. <laughs> Larry, Larry Klein was so mad at him, he was going to drop him off the freeway on the way home. Larry Klein attacked me. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I, remember, I remember he told me his plan, he was going to drop you off. So I, I, I secretly went and grabbed you so you'd get home okay. Man. <laughs> Yeah, he he. <laughs> so you guys knew before playing that show that it was going to be the last show with. Oh yeah, yeah. No, Roy came to me a couple weeks beforehand, and he, you know, he did the right thing. He stuck out the gigs that we had to play. Uh, he, he got offered a good gig with the with Red Cross. Couldn't blame him. You know, we were mad. You know, we got over it. Um, but yeah, <laughs> you know, a couple of the guys in the band were were pretty pretty uptight, and it was still raw. We just learned that he was leaving, and, and things were starting to happen. Yeah, Larry, our other guitar player, he was really, he was really bummed out. Um, but he had told me he was gonna, <laughs> he was gonna do it too. He was gonna give Roy a ride home and drop him off, you know, about hundred miles from the top. I wasn't after. I wasn't gonna get in the car with him that night anyway. There's no, there was no way that was gonna happen. Um, yeah, and then and then Mike joined the band, and 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 like you know, Mike was my best friend in high school. Um, yeah. And that's kind of like literally through Mike. I was like, how I met all these guys. Yeah, Mike. Mike was a good guy, but he was he was the wrong guy for for my team. Anyway, you know. Yeah, I mean, he he you know he was very much a like a you know four on the floor four on the floor you know. He didn't listen to my strum, man. Rock guy. <laughs> um, he wouldn't listen to me strum my guitar. What? <laughs> he <wouldn't laughs> <listen to> my <laughs> okay, so. Just briefly, um, so Roy leaves the band, and then this record comes out. Thanks. Yeah. On Epiphone.
second second epitaph released. Oh, is released. that right? So that was the second yeah. second epitaph album. So epitaph was owned by Brett Ger Gerwich that we were talking about earlier, right? Right, right. So um, how how did this record come about, Steve? It sounds like you're not super thrilled with the record. Well, I wasn't super thrilled with the band at the time. Um, there was a lot going on. I, I had gotten some, you know, bad arguments with Greg Shaw at Vox and. Um, Roy had left and, and we struggled. Mike was the second drummer actually who played with Roy. He played with a guy named Rick for a little while before then. Oh, I forgot. Uh, and, I, and I just was, I was just disappointed with the, with what was happening, you know, the band just wasn't sounding like it was, you know, and we really tried, tried to keep it going, and there was a lot of momentum, uh, you know, when Outside My Window came out, so I, I I went along, you know, I really, really tried to, to put an effort into it. But that album, we, you know, it was more, it was, it was, there were my tunes, but it was Larry's record. Larry's the one that drove that whole project. He's the one that got me, <laughs> dragged me down to the studio. And he's the one that kind of, he's the one that, that hooked up with Brett and, and convinced me to sign with Brett and leave Greg. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot, there's a lot going on personally for me at the time. Like I say, a couple times I recorded and I knew I had really bad dead strings and I just was too lazy to replace them before recording, you know. Um, and and if you hear the demos, that and some of the songs Roy played demos on and, and even Rick, the replacement drummer, they were better, they had a better groove. That If you listen to drums, and at that time, Brett was really into recording drums, so it was a very drum-heavy record. If you listen, the drums sound a little bit in front of everything to me. You know, and Mike, we were following Mike. Mike wasn't following us. Now that's my problem with that record. It's a, it's very fast. It's very it's very Mike driven, um, and it's and it's me trying to play to Mike. You know, there's some. Good that's songs. how I hear it. There's some really good songs on that album. There were there were there are, there's a lot of good songs on that album. Yeah, but th that's the kind of drummer Mike was, though. I mean, draw, Mike, you know, yeah, kind of drove every band that he was in, and yeah, that was yeah. And I don't know if you remember, but we had a, we had a bunch of different songs ready for that third record that if you were with us, we were going to do. And I was still thinking of that, you know, Sergeant Pepper kind of mold. And I had to throw all that out the door with, with Mike. I know the songs worked. So a lot of those songs were just two chord kind of punkish kind of, you know, kind of tunes. So what, yeah. what would have the third record have sounded like if Roy didn't leave the band? Oh, we'd be famous. <laughs> yeah uh I, I you know i have a lot of what if moments about all that but you know uh i we would have had a better record that's what i would thought you know um and some of the demos we did beforehand even just in my garage i thought were were better sounding better songs maybe not better sounding better songs 
Well, at that point, we had the, that four track kind of nailed down. I mean, when we did Seems to Be Raining, that was almost like the first, wasn't that one of the first four tracks we did? Oh, yeah, easily one of the first. That was, that was me learning how to use it, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's actually, that's all, is that all you? That's all you, isn't it? Yeah, I was wondering when you were going to remember all, that. Yeah. That's right. That's, that's all Steve. Yeah. <laughs> drums yeah. included? What? What's that? The drums? Even the drums? In the drums. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, yeah, that was a song. Oh, I used to do a lot of that. I used to kind of, and if you listen, I'm not playing very well. And that's what was surprising why Rodney played it. But it does have kind of a garage feel. But I would do that and I'd bring him to rehearsal and say, this is how the song goes. And then those guys would, you know, they, they'd get the structure of the tunes. And, and then Roy would master his part, play it way better than me for sure, you know. Um, but yeah, I was learning how to use this thing. And I Roy had his drums at my house and I just I would yeah. record yeah. these. And I, these were all first take songs. None of that was was rehearsed. I would just record it real quick, and then I'd show these guys what I was thinking about. Uh, yeah. And I just on that tape that we gave Rodney, I just it, I just threw it on there for fun. It was the last song on the tape. That's what was surprising when he played it. He had to have listened to everything before he got to that tune. Yeah, yeah. Because I think the first song he played was "It's Over," and then later in the show, because he played us twice. Wow. Yeah. Later in the show, he played "It Seems to Be Raining," and then that came. That became like his song that he played like every week. But yeah. he was playing different stuff, you know. But you know, and then on "Outside My Window," I think he. What was the one he played on that? He played every time. He played every time, which still gets played on Underground Garage. I still get a check from Sirius Radio. Yeah, yeah. It gets, yeah. gets played on the airlines. Yeah. <laughs> songs on that record i think we nailed that particular song it's just you know what we wanted to do with that song on that record every every time we just we kind of that's actually the way we wanted it to be um, that's got to be a good feeling as an artist to have the finished song come out how you intended it to right or or just or even better yeah what you, thought, you know yeah that, we were really happy with that uh, that and uh, I, I vote, my favorite on that record is You Can't Deliver. I just kind of, I like yeah. the whole vibe of that, you know. It's a great album. Thank you. Yes. I mean, we, there, there was work put into that one. Yeah, there was. Uh, we were wondering, uh, we know that these three releases were released on vinyl only, but, you know, now with digital platforms, are there other places where the things music can be found? Not that, well, there's some foreign labels that I don't know what they've done with it. I know that uh, Lolita Records in France um, put out the record when it came out. Uh, and there was a label out of Greece, Hitchhike, that was really, they, they were fans of ours. Now we, we kind of burned the bridge with Vox, so I don't think they're going to be 
re-release anything. In fact, when I've gone to the website, every band that they've ever recorded is listed except us. <laughs> I think we're on their compilation. They had the Vox compilation, and I think yeah, yeah. I think every time got and ended up on that, if I remember correctly. But yeah, every time, um, there, yeah, the on the bomb compilation, then be a, be a caveman. Um, can't get enough. Ended up on that. Oh, can't get enough. Yeah. So, is there any chance of this ever? this material ever being released in digital platform, form? digital? Well, you know, I, I years ago, I, I tried to get a hold of uh, Bump Records because uh, I knew they had them in the, I knew they had, we gave the master tapes to the first record, to Greg, and I knew where he kept them in his warehouse. I'd seen them. Um, and nobody ever returned my calls. And then Greg passed away and, and I just assumed, well then, you know, I'm, that's, I'll never see those again by the day. So I, I've remastered stuff at home, you know, with what I have, but I haven't got the money or the, the even the wherewithal to, <laughs> to try to put it back out there, you know? Um, so no, there, there's the record company especially is not going to be doing it for us. Okay. Yeah. We usually like to point our listeners to a place where they can go listen to the records that we've talked about, but I, I have seen vinyl around. So there's, there are places. There's vinyl. And I've actually kind of uh, been putting out and remastering and putting them on YouTube, you know, a, a song here, a song there, you know. Um, I've been able to remaster some of them better than they were. You know. Yeah, I've heard a couple of those. They sound really good. So. Oh, thanks, thanks. All right, so we don't want to take too much of your time. It's been an hour. But before we let you go, we just wanted to, is there any overall overview or summary looking back at the 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 time that you guys both spent as the things, how you would describe that time period? Oh, it's, you know, it's magical. Yeah, you know? no, that's, how, that's exactly what I was thinking. It was a magical I have, I have no, time for us. I mean. Nothing but fond memories, you know. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because I remember Greg Shaw saying to me, and it, this was at the rave up, he, he said, you know, and, and he was talking about a conversation that he was having with Chrissy Hine back in, like the late 70s where they were talking about this is like the time you're always going to remember this time you know before everything happened you know happened and and he goes you're going to remember this time and it's true he's absolutely true you know we, we were in the moment at the time but yeah i mean i i think back on all of that really fondly yeah yeah it was a short it was a short period but it was uh it was big yeah <laughs> Well, as a fan, I want to thank you guys for these records. Um, these are always in heavy rotation for me. Years later, I'm still listening to these, so I really appreciate it. Oh, Ugly artwork yeah. or not, the music on here is fantastic. <laughs> uh, I wanted to thank you both for coming on the show and for putting out this music that will go on forever for me. It's timeless. Well, well thank you, man. And, and right back at you. I, I listen to you guys every now and then, and what you guys are doing is very cool. You know, you talk about a period that I, you know, I was you know it was it was huge to me so listen to you guys talk about some of these things some of the people that were there it's a lot of fun to listen to man so thank you for having us this has been a blast and i got to see my buddy roy who i haven't seen in so yeah, yeah that, that's what i wanted to say too i have you know like steve and i haven't haven't talked in a, in a while and it was just great to 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 connect with steve again so you know thank thank the both of you for for you know connecting us that was great it was great talking about all this it was just you know yeah it was fun thank you guys so much Soraya. So, yeah. Um, and lastly, in case anyone uh, 
wants to follow you on social media are either of you on social media is there any place where people can seek you out i'm i'm, I'm on facebook steve Roy, yeah roy's now you can't find him anywhere uh, <laughs> uh i'm on facebook and also uh i have a youtube channel called moondog records all one word moondog. Where, where you can find a, you can find a bunch of stuff but but every, all the things videos are out there um, excellent so. And Roy, you know, just think good thoughts. Yeah. That's a, yes, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> and and uh, but for our listeners, go listen to the things you won't regret it. Yeah. Thank won't you. Regret. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so much. It's been no. Thank you guys. Really. Thank you, Steve. All right. Thank, thank you both. You guys. Bye bye. Bye. Well, Soraya, what did you think of that conversation? That was a good conversation. It was. It was like I, I'm just smiling. I like listening to them a lot, and for them to reflect on this band and you know reflect on three albums. How many? How many bands can say that? We know bands that after one, you know, things happen and they go away. Three albums happen. Two with Roy, you know, and it's music that's good. Yeah. Yeah. But what, what blows my mind is about Colored Heaven. That, you know, to hear them talk about, well, you know, we had some songs together, then we go record, then we go get a few more and then go. But when you listen to it, there's, there's something really solid there. And so I was a bit surprised to hear that recording process. But then you have um, Outside My Window, and yes, it's a different record, and you definitely see this band kind of moving and evolving. It was just really cool to hear. It was really cool. cool. And one thing that was super unique about this episode that we've never had before, and I imagine will never ever happen again, is these guys reconnecting after some period of time. And it was like this reunion that we that we captured in this hour that we've never had that before. Because most of the people, if we talk to, are still in communication or we're just talking to one member of the band. Um, but we, in this episode, we bring together these two guys who are a core part of this band with Steve and Roy and obviously have a deep connection. Uh, it's obvious, right? And seeing- for one, it's Like an affection for one another. Absolutely. You know? Deep, deep. Like, this is my brother, this is my musical brother. I like that. Yeah. We've never had that before. We've never had that connection because a lot of these guys are still recording together or have been, you know, with like Rain Parade, Rain Parade's still recording. With Dream Syndicate, they're still recording. Um, the Things haven't recorded together as a band. Steve and Roy have not recorded as a band since 85, 86. Um, Wait, so what? Yeah, Outside My Window is 86, yeah? So, and um, I, imagine, I imagine that they've talked to each other since then, but it, it's, it it's been a while and so this we get this reconnection and um to me it's perfect because being a huge fan of this band the things i i really love the first two records and it's it's cool to see these guys reconnecting and like you said the 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 brotherhood that's there that i mean it sounds like these guys grew up very young you know teenagers what roy was still in high school Still in high school, Steven, you know, he was out of high school. I mean, but 19, 18, 19, 
and these guys were Jeff, think think back to when you were 18. Okay, because I'll think back to when I was 18. <laughs> I definitely didn't have any sort of creative idea like this. And what the, what they put out, there was a vision and there was a motivation behind it. I, I it, it's amazing to me. And that the music, I agree with you, the first two albums are strong and the music lasts. Proof positive. You know what? Everything from you know, outside my window is still played on Underground Garage. I, I mean, I think there's, I think that's what's so interesting about the story about the things. A lot of talent, a lot of creativity, drive times a thousand. And it, you know, just the traction of the band got, got lost or, you know, it got, got um, diverted and but at least we have these three albums, you know, granted, still vinyl, so discogs it is. Or eBay. Um, also, Steve also pointed us to his YouTube channel, Moondog Records, um, where he's, you know, been able to remaster some things. And, they sound really and I like good. Them, even better, even better than the original, you know? Yeah. I love that when an artist could talk about his own product in that way. Yeah, and we didn't talk about what these guys do afterwards right so we're talking about moondog records so um that was a, a, a perfect reminder for me and yes there's some of these remastered versions on uh, that he has out on youtube that sound fantastic but he's yes. gone on to a bunch of other stuff that's worth looking into for sure he's still recording still putting out videos still putting out songs that are fabulous um i just wanted us to focus on this period of the thing no and then we we know that roy's gone you know, Red Cross, the Muffs, all kinds of stuff. But um, yeah, they're, I mean, these guys went on to do amazing stuff that is definitely worth checking out too. But I'm glad but that we- This moment in time, exactly. this moment in time, the things is worth paying attention to. I mean, that's why I'm glad. I'm glad that we were able to sit and talk with the two of them because yes, we could have also talked about other things, but this project, is really something special and you know it's i want to encourage everyone you know because my first contact it's no secret my first contact was thanks to jeff but thanks to jeff i was able to go and listen and re i really enjoy it and so you know the things music to me still holds you know, to this day, I like it a lot. And uh, it's just two really solid people, you know, involved in this project. It's really cool yeah. to hear. And, you know, the fact that they got to spend a little time together reminiscing with you and me, you know, we've always talked about wanting to be that fly on the wall. And I think we had our fly on the wall moment. <laughs> perfect way to describe it. Yeah, perfect way to describe it. Yeah. That's and I don't, th I don't think there are two nicer people. Agreed. I mean, yeah. but they're very cool, very generous with their time and, um, and very talented guys, both. And, and very honest, very honest about what their band did and, um, and what their role in it was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I, I just can't stop smiling. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's very heartwarming. Very Absolutely. Hard. So continuing down the road of our Vox record artist, 
Yeah. Hopefully, next week, our plan is to talk to San Diego artist, the Telltale Hearts. Yep. So um, we're expecting to have most of that band on, too. So we'll hear how... Yeah, we'll hear how, what their experience was like uh, being a band. I think it'll be much different than what we heard from today from Stephen Roy, but we'll see. We'll see next we'll week when we talk about Telltale Hearts. Shoot, man. So let's uh, rewind some of the tape here. A couple of things that, a couple of the threads that we uh, heard from a lot of the Paisley the Underground bands and some of the other bands. The impact of Forever Changes by Love. Um, and um, Rodney, the, the role that Rodney plays in, you know, the initial stages at least Huge. of a lot of bands. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we have to add into this discussion, you know, Craig Shaw. Yeah. You know, um, but to me, it's just really cool. The one, you know, what was missing was the recycler. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So this. No bingo. No bingo. <laughs> we were, that, was, that was the space missing. Yeah. But this was more of a networking been, situation with. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And the camaraderie. But, but yeah. Again, connections with it, all the artists that we talked to. There's some of those, those common threads yeah. throughout. So. Folks, get thee to Discogs or get thee to uh, Steve Crabtree's YouTube channel, Moondog Records, one word he said. Um, but uh, worth it and worth listening to this music. Um, good band, great product, and enjoy it. Yes. Uh, Jeff, my hat's off to you. Starting off this box series with with a big old bang. Yes. With a reunion. <laughs> the reunion. Woo! All right, Jeff. Gente, aruya. Groove on, Paisley people.
other things. 